This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. This is Catherine Klein on Dollars and Change. And I'm Sandy Hunt. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for being with us. We, uh, you know, time is flying by. Good morning. Hope it's, hope hope traffic is, is uh, for those of you who are driving, the traffic is moving. We know we're having trouble here in, in Philadelphia. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we've had some great conversations, and I'm looking forward to our next segment coming up right now with Ed Markham, who is the Managing Director of Humanity United. So, uh, we, you know, we're going to just have a conversation about investing, supply chains, and and human trafficking. So what is the role in business in, in preventing human trafficking? i got to say this is a, you know, a good example of the kind of innovation that we see in social impact. We would have thought, you know, uh, human trafficking, that's a regulation problem. That's mm-hmm. a government problem. Maybe nonprofits can make a difference. Uh, Ed's going to talk with us about the, the role of business. So without further ado, Ed, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great, pleasure to be here. Great to have you with us. Uh, for our listeners who are not so familiar with Humanity United, describe this to us. You're a nonprofit organization. How should we understand what Humanity United is and does? Yeah, Humanity United. It's a private foundation started by eBay founder Piero Midiar and his wife Pam, um, that focuses specifically on a number of different human rights related issues. So they have a variety of different philanthropic entities. Each has its particular focus. Um, and Humanity United is their sort of the human rights division. Um, and since inception, we've worked o- across a number of different human rights-related issues but have a particular focus on issues of forced labor, human trafficking, um, you know, severe forms of labor exploitation. And um, within Humanity United, I oversee a body of work that looks at trying to address forced labor within the supply chains of multinational corporations. So, Ed, you know, I think that human trafficking is a term that people hear and think, oh, yeah, I kind of know what that is, sort of like mass incarceration. Okay, mm-hmm. I sort of know what that is. But when you dig into these topics, when you, you know, and we have the opportunity to, to connect with an expert, you can learn so much about, like, what are, we actually, what are we actually talking about? What is human trafficking? Why is this a concern? Um, so let's move a little bit beyond the, oh, yeah, of course, to dig into what's the problem here? I mean, the, I think the problem is that millions of people um, continue to find themselves in situations of severe exploitation. And, um, you know, that exploitation can run across a continuum. Obviously, there's, there's sort of sex trafficking and sexual exploitation. Um, and then there's exploitation within the, the sort of labor trafficking space and within the workforce. Um, you know, again, we have a variety of different um, practices within Humanity United um, and my focus is really more on what would be labor trafficking, and so maybe I can speak more specifically yeah. to yeah. what is, some what of is, the vulnerabilities you what, see in, in that situation. What I is think, labor trafficking? Know, yeah, and so um, you know, I think if you if you look um, across societies, basically, uh, you know, you have vulnerability. Um, you've got uh, huge swaths of of the population that are living below two dollars a day. Um, often it can be gender, migrant status, um, caste, uh, poverty, et cetera, a number of drivers that create vulnerability. Um, and, and within that context, then, there are, um, you know, sort of systemic 
processes that that often take advantage of of, of labor um, to the point where you're often essentially forced to work, um, whether that's through explicit threats um, of violence and or through you know debt bondage or other 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 levers that basically make it impossible for you to to leave a particular work setting. Um, so and let me give an example because I think it may be helpful and, uh, you know, that comes to mind as you describe this. And, uh, you know, I'm guessing this was uh, you know, a borderline. It was likely to be, um, you know, labor trafficking, human trafficking was yeah. almost. So uh, I've done a lot of work in Rwanda and I've okay. you know, be, kind of become a mentor to some young women. These were uh, some years ago. These were young women who were graduating from a women's college, lots of vocational training. Uh, it's, a, it's a very impressive institution called the Aquila Institute, and I was close to these uh, these two young women and kind of supporting them in their march out of poverty and empowerment. Uh, so I get an email from them. Uh, you know, I'm asking them, what are you going to do after you graduate? I get an email. There's this great hotel that wants to hire us in London. They're going to pay us so much money. It's really exciting. We're going to live in London, and we're going to be hired by this hotel. Don't tell anyone at Aquila that this is happening. Don't, you know, don't convey this information to the yeah. leaders of the school. And it was that combination of great opportunity in, in London and don't tell others that just was a real red flag for me. Huh. And I wow. said, yeah, you know, and, and I said to them, don't take this, you know, don't take this. This is too dangerous. You know, I absolutely am going to tell other people at the leadership of Aquila that this is happening. Um, because, you know, my guess is they would have been hired and they would have been seriously, you know, found themselves Rwandan, no network, you know, working in who knows what industry uh, in London, no money, pretty much, you know, and incredibly vulnerable, right? No way to, to say, okay, I quit and I'm out of here. So is that what we're talking about? Is that a good example? Yeah, I think, um, you know, particularly with respect to migrant labor, um, there really is, again, systemic risks that, that cut across geographies, that cut across industries, for example. And so too often migrant workers, in many cases, doesn't sound like this is the case necessarily of the people that you, are, um, that you know in Rwanda, um, but very often actually workers will pay to acquire a job. Um, there are often very unscrupulous labor agents and recruiters in that process yep. um, who then begin to charge predatory interest rates on top of that, th- that debt. Um, they'll end up in a destination country. There's a little bit of contract substitution, as it were, whereby the terms of, of the work and or in some cases even the place that they thought they were going to be employed doesn't exist. Right. Um, and then they're often forced to work there, you know, again, in a foreign country. Often they're not unaware of what their rights are as migrants. Often their passports are confiscated. Um, and so they're forced to work sometimes two, three years, in, in some cases on unofficial contracts, in other cases um, there really isn't even a contract in place, and 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 they're um, they're you know they're highly vulnerable and at the whims of whoever it is that brought them to to that particular uh, situation. So where does um, so it's easy? I would imagine uh, folks listening to you and uh, and we're talking with Ed Markham, managing director of Humanity United. Folks who are joining us, listening in, may think not in the United States. Yeah, this is a problem. I get this. This is serious. This is problematic. You know, we do not want any situations where uh, where people are essentially enslaved and uh, for you know in bondage for years, maybe their lifetime. That doesn't happen in the United States. Um, 
Mm. Is that true that it doesn't happen in the United States? I have heard of stories of where it does happen in the United States. To what extent is, is human trafficking an issue in the United States? I mean, it, it absolutely still happens in the United States. It certainly doesn't happen at the scale it may in other parts of the world. Um, you know, again, where I think poverty can be, in particular, a driver of vulnerability that mm. makes the exploitation on, at, at mass scale a, a little bit of a different proposition. But, um, you know, again, differentiating between sex trafficking, where there is a, a vibrant sex trafficking industry within the United States, and then labor trafficking, where I think in particular when you look at the agricultural sector and migrant farm workers, uh, many of the same phenomena that I just discussed around pain to acquire a job, ending up, you know, in a destination country um, with work terms um, and or particular labor agents, unscrupulous la labor agents who are um, maybe even not necessarily they often serve as middlemen. So, you know, even if, if farmers are, are paying the middlemen, the middlemen may be not necessarily paying the workers um, the amount of money they should, they should be getting. Um, again, they often are in debt, um, so they're highly vulnerable. They're typically here on contracts, um, and some of, the, some of those contracts are very difficult to get, get out of. They're, they're fearful of leaving their, their employment because of their migratory status. Um, so, yes, this is something that does take place at scale. And as I said, it, it often depends on the industry, but I think there are certain sectors um, and agriculture would be, I think, chief among them, where, where there, there is severe exploitation like this that does continue to occur. And so one of the more recent um, activities at Humanity United has been the launch of this Working Capital Fund. Can you tell our listeners what this is and why it's unique? Yeah, it's, so it's a new early-stage $23 million venture fund, and it's basically built on the investment thesis or premise that there are many businesses that want to do a better job of understanding if, where, how, essentially, labor exploitation is occurring within their supply chain, and not just in the first tier of their supply chain, but often all the way down to the bottom of their supply chain at the commodity level, where you know, things like inputs like cocoa or palm mm -hmm. oil and or seafood um, you know, may be entering into their supply chain with, with forced labor and are tainted by forced labor, essentially. And, um, so we believe that there's growing demand from business to have visibility into labor conditions deep in their supply chain. Sure, because I, I think for a lot of these current, folks, it's, you know, it's not that they would you know, not want to avoid those practices, but historically has been very difficult to trace to that level or very expensive exactly. and labor intensive to do so. Yeah. So exactly. how is... I mean, we, so we look at the, at the toolkit that currently is available to them. So you've got you know, voluntary supplier codes of conduct, which are voluntary, often very difficult to enforce. Theoretically, mm -hmm. they're supposed to cascade down the supply chain. Yeah. Um, but as I said, they're often unenforced. There are social audits, which are important, but they're a snapshot in time every year, two years. Often, you know, employees can be gamed and coached in terms of how to respond to some of the, the questions that are asked to them. So often they don't really tell you that much about labor conditions. Um, and so we started to see a number of really innovative, primarily technology platforms that allow for uh, companies to have better visibility into what's going on in their supply chain and felt like um, there was an opportunity to perhaps build out a suite of tools that would allow those well-intentioned businesses that wanted to do more um, to be able in a cost-effective and scalable way to have, have a better sense of, of what was taking place within their supply chain uh, in terms of labor rights. So this, this Working Capital Fund, uh, part of Humanity United, is investing in, uh, investing in startups that yep. uh, are, you know, uh, that startups that have products and services that might illuminate human trafficking in the supply chain and allow a corporation to say, you know what, that's not how we're going to you know, get our supplies. That's not the cocoa we're going to buy. 
that's not the you know the fabric that we're going to purchase. What what kinds of companies are you you know learning about? What kinds of companies are you investing in? Yeah, there are a number of of different sort of product categories that we think are particularly interesting. So one would be worker voice or worker empowerment platforms. So now that you've got ubiquitous penetration of cell phones and increasingly of smartphones, there are a number of for-profit entities that are trying to allow for real-time anonymous feedback for from workers in any given working condition, which we feel like is a, a significant upgrade over the social audit, where you get that snapshot every year or two years. Now all of a sudden. If there is a health and safety risk on a factory floor, if workers haven't been paid for three weeks, et cetera, you can know that in real time and you can intervene and remediate quickly. Um, and um, there have been a number of startups that have entered into this space. And um, you know, we think that there are actually some business models and some scalable platforms there that could, in fact, again, begin to integrate their way into corporate practice in a more mainstream way um, as something that would either replace or at least augment social audits. Um, Another interesting area that we've, we've looked at um, has to do with recruitment, as we were talking about earlier, which is um, given that there are so many unethical recruiters, um, can there be ethical recruitment models that don't charge workers, that don't confiscate passports? Uh, how can you begin to differentiate some of those actors, the good from the bad, um, and you know, really address, I think, a variety of things that would help business, which is, one, obviously protect them from reputational risk. Um, but also, you know, hopefully drive better productivity and less turnover if the workers who are in, in their supply chain are being treated well. And so we started to see a number of ethical recruiters who are vertically integrated. Often they'll sort of have chain of custody from for employees from the village level all the way through to, in some cases, managing on the factory floor. Um, and they're they're a little bit more expensive, but again, there may be some gains in productivity. Certainly, they address reputational risk. So that's an area that we're we're interested in. Um, we see risk assessment tools and the use of big data analytics and machine learning and artificial intelligence as something that also can allow particularly people who are in situations or in positions of ethical procurement um, uh, to be able to better identify where they have real risk in their supply chain. So um, too often you'll have tens of thousands, even in some cases hundreds of thousands of subcontractors in your supply chain. It's a little bit overwhelming to know where your risk comes from. And we're starting to see tools that can use big data and begin to identify and correlate certain data points in ways that would tell you, hey, there's a specific vendor in your supply chain that perhaps had a problem with Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which we're not saying necessarily means they're guilty of trafficking, but it means that as you're doing your diligence and you're taking your limited resources, that's probably where you might want to do a deeper dive. Um, and that... Sure. So I I, um, I want to just let our listeners know that we're talking with Ed Mar Markham, Managing Director at Humanity United, and we have a, a call. Uh, Barry from Atlanta is on the line with some questions about the role of government in in uh, stopping human trafficking. Barry, welcome to the uh, welcome to the show. What's your question or comment? Uh, yeah, it was just that I wanted to see what your guest um, is doing with the government. Uh, you know, obviously there are rules, regulation, laws, policies, all kinds of things, and and this problem doesn't just exist in rogue states, right? It's just across the board, first world, third world. So why, how come these things go on under the watch, quote unquote, watchful eyes of the governments? You know, like why, why isn't there? So more done there? before we pass this to Ed, I'm curious, uh, you know, what your view is? Is it your view that hey, we absolutely need uh, investors and in these kinds of platforms, these new businesses, to solve this problem because government won't, or is your view like hey, government's pretty strong, we should just push government to do more? What, what do you think? Uh, no, I'm saying what is the um, 
what, why aren't governments take, because they can take swift and uh, very deterministic action against these things because they have the resources and wherewithal. Why does this go on? Obviously, like even in the United States, some subsidized stuff goes on and, you know, with the immigration and this and that, exploitation, you know, farm workers, whatnot. So how come these things are allowed to go on and it's like a wink and a nod or is mm. money exchanging money exchanging hands under the tables and this and that? I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, like how culpable is the government or the governments in these type of, uh, you know, say for these type of things to go yeah, on? Yeah. Uh, Ed, what's your response to, to Barry's question? I mean, I think corruption certainly can play a factor, um, unquestionably. And obviously, you don't want to generalize, and that varies by by in, by context, by geography, et cetera. Um, I think there there is um, a bigger question with respect to responsibility for these issues. And um, you know, in 2011, the UN came out with the UN principles on on business and human rights guiding principles. Um, and uh, developed by a man by the name of John Ruggie, they're often referred to as the Ruggie Principles, and they begin to start to delineate um, responsibilities between, you know, the the business sector, the governmental sector, the NGO sector, um, and ultimately, you know, I think that the, you know, it's clear that there's no single sector, there's no single actor who can um, solve this problem on their own, um, and it requires collective action. Certainly, there need to be strong laws on the books in certain contexts in certain countries, um, and then those those laws need to be enforced. And, and there is corruption, you know, within government. There's corruption often within law enforcement um, that um, then allows for um, even strong legislation, legislation and strong policies to be ignored. Um, so un- unquestionably, that that is part of the problem. And I think you know, within our work at Humanity United, we recognize that there is this requirement for collective action. Um, one piece of the puzzle, though, that we, you know, we also believe can be addressed independently is what business does to try to address the problem. And um, not that they are solely responsible, but if you look at their practice, they could be doing more. And that's, I think, when you look at the, the rollout and launch of working capital, um, what we hope our contribution is going to be, which is to say um, this is not a substitute for you know, good policy and good enforcement of policy within certain contexts, um, but it is something that can um, on its own and independently drive better practice and mitigate risk for millions of workers. Right, right. Barry, thanks for your call. And, and uh, Ed, thanks for that thoughtful answer. So, Ed, I'm curious. When you, you know, as you're thinking about growing, launching, assisting these uh, different solutions for transparency, is, you know, why are you seeing businesses demand these tools? What's what's driving them? Is it that um, litigation's increasing, that customers are um, you know demanding more transparency? Is it that they feel it's the right thing to do? What's what's really driving these businesses? Yeah, I think it's a confluence of a number of trends, many of which you mentioned. I mean, I guess the I'd start with with policy. I think there's actually been a number of very influential and catalytic policies that have emerged over the last several years that have forced business to pay more attention to this issue. Um, starting with California, the California Transparency and Supply Chain Act seven years ago. Um, which forced any company that had over $100 million worth of, worth of revenue that was a manufacturer, retailer, and broadly defined was doing business in California, they were forced to disclose what steps they took to mitigate risks of trafficking in their operation in seven different categories. Um, and that log- legislation was flawed in large part because um, they were un- un- unwilling to announce which companies were subject to the law because it was based on confidential tax ID information. But 
Having said that, then you've seen the UK Modern Slavery Act emerge over the last several years. Australia has passed transparency legislation. France has passed transparency legislation and disclosure legislation. So basically, regardless of you know the jurisdiction that you're operating in now, you're required to disclose what steps you take to mitigate risks of trafficking. Got it. So um, policy is one. Diligence. Policy is one, certainly. Um, I think public awareness of this issue has increased dramatically over the last several years, and, and that's a function, I think, of both a stronger NGO sector um, but also some really influential investigative reporting, you know, in certain contexts, for example, um, in the context of Thailand in the seafood sector, The Guardian broke a number of really critical stories that linked tainted supply of seafood to the supply chains of Walmart, Costco, Morrison's, etc. Um, and that really focused the minds of, of the actors in that sector, and you've seen real movement and attention paid to that. And that also, also touched the supply chains of food and beverage companies, the Nestle's of the world, etc., um, you know, whether it's there's construction in the Gulf has also received a lot of, um, of, of notoriety, particularly ahead of the World Cup coming up in, in Qatar, where really severe exploitation has occurred. A number of, you know, young, very able-bodied young men have died um, under, under, you know, really horrendous working conditions, essentially, and that's been pretty well documented. Um, and so overall, I think just collectively, you look at palm oil, um, seafood, a number of commodities. Increasingly, I think there's a there's a really strong evidence base that that this is a a, a problem that you know any company operating in those particular contexts or geographies needs to be aware of and needs to be taking steps to mitigate the risks of. So, I think all of these things have helped to drive um, business to take the issue more seriously. Obviously, reputational risk. I think you know the the consumer habits of, of particularly young consumers and millennials who who are signaling at a minimum, that they, they care about the ethical production of goods and will actually vote with their wallets. Um, you know, I think that a lot of these things are, are, are sort of combining to um, uh, sort of force business at a minimum to, uh, to pay more attention to the issue. Are, you, are we actually seeing dollars move? And, you know, we, as a, an example of sort of what I'm, I'm asking here, we um, do a lot of work around gender lens investing. And so we've you know, seeing data and heard stories about how women are more apt to invest with, um, you know, a social impact lens on their investments. But that mostly comes from surveys of women saying what they believe, what they would like to do. Right. And we're not seeing yeah. all of those dollars actually flow. Yeah. You know, so I'm asking sort of the, the corollary question, which is, are you seeing dollars move based on business practices? Mm -hmm. Are consumers just saying this is what they want and companies acknowledging that there's reputational risk? Or is this actually having a, a capital impact? Yeah, and no, I think it's a it's a great question. I think there um, there's always an aspiration that that will happen. I, I think you know, there, there are there's a lot of evidence that people say one thing and obviously do another thing and don't often actually vote with their wallets. Um, I have seen, you know, a few data points that suggest that, you know, again, this younger generation is going to care more and, and they will, in fact, um, you know, move from sort of talk to action, essentially. But I don't, I don't, I'm not aware of, of specific data that shows that, um, you know, some of those habits are actually changing. Ed, I'd like to switch gears a little bit. Um, you are, as we said, the managing director at Humanity United. And, you yeah. know, this current role that you've got is a pretty fascinating role with deep expertise around a, you know, a, a major complex international social issue around human trafficking and, and really workforce conditions. 
and you're bringing, you know, and, and you're managing a fund and thinking about investments, investment returns, attracting, uh, you know, attracting investors. How, tell us a little bit about your path. How did you, how did you get from uh, from Wharton as a as a Wharton alum to to this role? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually was managing a nonprofit before I went to Wharton, and um, so I've always been driven to sort of social impact oriented work, and. Um, my intention was to go back to the nonprofit sector and, and, and continue to, to lead an organization, um, which I did right after graduation, um, but then had the opportunity relatively early on to be one of the founding members of Humanity United when it was a, a mere initiative within something called Omidyar Network, which is a, a larger philanthropic entity that the Omidyar family had started. And so I was the the, the third employee and the first impro- programmatic employee at Humanity United over a decade ago. And over that time, you know, had the opportunity to help build the institution, work across uh, a variety of different really compelling uh, yet challenging issues. I mean, we, we have a particular focus on trying to address some of the most intractable human rights problems that exist on the planet, um, including issues of, you know, prevention of, of a genocide and atrocities and, and conflict prevention in certain contexts, et cetera. So um, have worked across a variety of those different, different portfolios over, over my time there. Um, but then for the last six and a half, seven years, have been working specifically on issues of forced labor and, and forced labor and supply chains. Fascinating. And I know that, you know, Humanity United broadly works in a number, you know, focusing on a number of, of social issues, including your expertise around sort of labor tra- trafficking. Is this, you know, funding innovation a model that has worked in other sectors that you're, you know, um, eager to bring to labor trafficking, or is it, is it a, a sort of a pilot exercise for Humanity United to put together a fund to combat these issues? I, mean, I think it's certainly um, a, a novel concept and a, and a, and a, and a different orientation. So, uh, you know, throughout um, sort of the inception of Humanity United and, and really based on the broader ecosystem of what's called the Omidyar Group, a variety of different entities that, that, that do different work, uh, there's always been a commitment to impact investing. So, um, you know, a very flexible capital approach to trying to, to address social issues, whether that be using philanthropic capital, um, debt capital in some contexts, and or equity, um, really depending on what you're trying to achieve and whether that particular mechanism or tool is going to be able to best help you achieve those results. Um, and I think that's very, very, um, you know, sort of uh, apropos for what we're trying to do as well. There's, there's sort of grant capital that we can use to spur some of these innovations, but ultimately we think that many of the innovations are out there and exist. And what, what's needed now is for them to be able to scale to the point where they begin to mainstream into the way that corporations do diligence on human rights and labor rights. Um, and so, you know, I think we thought, you know, the, the best way to provide capital that will provide professionalism, you know, scale, sustainability over time is going to be for-profit capital. And it also allows us to be a bit more hands-on than, than we can be with philanthropic capital, where we can actually take board seats in some of these startup companies, mm. et cetera. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of, of sort of using um, venture capital for innovation, that's something that um, the family has done and, and, and we will continue to do. In terms of the, the specific focus of, of us having a fund, I think that's, that's novel um, in, in a number of ways. So we are, um, in some ways, have a somewhat commercial structure. So we have, a, it's a 10-year term fund where the Omidyar family has put in, you know, some, 
some some capital initially, so five million dollars into what is a twenty three million dollar fund. Um, but then we went out to limited partners, and we went out in particular with to limited partners from industry. So um, we've got limited partners in our fund that include Walmart, Disney, CNA, the clothing company. Um, so what our our goal there was to say, hey, if businesses on the front lines of dealing with these problems, can we get them to put some skin in the game to both serve as a sounding board? So when we're looking at new innovations, can we share some of the deal flow that we have with them and see if these are things that would actually help them in their job? Um, and then as some of our portfolio companies begin to scale and professionalize, um, there's a good opportunity to do some matchmaking there and see if we can get some of those companies to actually begin to contract with our portfolio. Uh, thanks so much, Ed. We need to take a break. We've been talking with Ed Markham, Managing Director of Humanity United. Fascinating conversation, and you know, we wish you great success with this. We'll be very interested to see how this fund's going, what kind of impact and returns you're creating over the next several years. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.